Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom and good evening. I'm Jonathan Hassan, and this is TV7 Editor's Note. Uh, unfortunately, Yair Pinto is currently uh, elsewhere, and therefore we're delighted to host uh, the uh, former Deputy Foreign Minister and Ambassador of Israel to the United States, uh, Mr. Daniel Elon. Thank you so much, Danny, for being here. Thank you. Pleasure uh, to be with you. Of course, you're also part of what we do here, uh, among others, Powers in Play, Middle East Review, and uh, so many more productions that you've been a part of for so many years now. So very proud to be part of the team here. Well, we're, we're proud as well. Uh, to a, a lesser degree, we're, we're more humbled, <laughs> to say uh, more accurately. Uh, but uh, in this production, we always open with prayer. So uh, I'd like to invite all of uh, uh, the people from all over the world watching us right now to join uh, us in prayer as uh, we dive uh, immediately thereafter into uh, the various topics that occurred, uh, the significant topics that occurred in the past uh, week or so. Uh, so let's uh, go ahead. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity of having uh, Daniel Lund here with us. Uh, we pray that you will guide and lead us, uh, guide each uh, and every word that we say, uh, that we may truly impact the nations for your name's sake. Father, Lord, I pray for the peace of Jerusalem uh, and salvation of Israel at such a tumultuous time. We give you all glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Danny. Uh, unfortunately, uh, last week we saw something that hasn't been here for such a long time. Um, two horrendous uh, explosions, uh, one less than a kilometer away from here. Uh, at the bus stop, which uh, actually Yair usually takes uh, to come here to the office. Uh, and the second in the Ramot Junction area, uh, unfortunately a dual uh, Canadian-Israeli national uh, Israeli was uh, murdered in that attack. Another 19 were injured, of course, uh, with uh, a couple of them still fighting for their lives as we speak. Um, as a Jerusalemite, personally, I remember all too well, of course, uh, um, we grew up in such an environment. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the the memories of childhood, usually we try to focus on all the good and, and the nostalgic uh, instances of, of uh, uh, growing up. But, uh, you know, when, when I think back, I think about a girl sitting next to me in, in math class, uh, who lost both her legs in one of the explosions. Our, one of our directors uh, here in TV7 actually lost uh, much of his hearing uh, during uh, the explosion, also not too far from here. Uh, so this is an experience that we've been thankful uh, to not experience for such a long time now, uh, roughly uh, 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, is this now going to be a new reality? Well, Jonathan, first of all, you're right. It's eerily reminiscent of the Intifada of 2000 to 2003 and 4, where thousand Israelis, more than a thousand Israelis, were murdered. Six or seven thousand were badly injured and maimed and handicapped uh, because of this murderous Palestinian terror, which has uh, really uh, shouldn't have any any reason. I mean, why would any human being, you know, a any godly person? 
would take the lives of another one uh, for a quasi-political cause, which is just not really a cause. Because the Palestinians, you know, who uh, claim that they, they want their freedom and sovereignty and state, they would have gotten it long ago. They would have gotten it today had they been willing to just put down their arms, recognize our very basic right, inherent right, to be here as a Jewish state. But this is not uh, the case. And I think that we can read uh, much more to it than just uh, what we see covered in, in, the, in the papers. So, of course, uh, this is something which uh, has not been haphazardly done by somebody who is, uh, who is not a professional or a terror organization. This is not like the um, occasional stabbing or ramming that, uh, that we have seen. And I believe that uh, what we see here, a recognition by the terror organizations, probably Hamas and Islamic Jihad, which are targeting not just Jews and the state of Israel, but also the Palestinian Authority as they want to take over the West Bank, just as they did Gaza in 2007. I think it's a recognition that they cannot really, quote unquote, inspire the people of the, the West Bank for some kind of an, uh, you know, a popular revolt. Uh, this is not the case. First of all, I think that uh, the standard of living in the West Bank is probably the highest it has ever been. And uh, not like in Gaza, which but is... But it's very centralized, uh, if I may add. But yes, absolutely. Mm. And secondly, I think that uh, they, they still have a lot to lose and, um, and they would not like to see what uh, happened in uh, the defensive shield operation back in 2000 and let me see, 2002. I remember I was at the prime minister's office. I was the foreign policy advisor of Ariel Sharon, who was the prime minister. There was this uh, massacre of uh, Passover in Netanya, in the hotel park. And then after that, you know, we realized there is no other way but to just go in. They would not like us to go in. So what we saw here, maybe some groups of youngsters who do not have any uh, remembrance from what happened 20, 20 some years ago. They are the TikTok generation inspiring each other for something which again is not organized and it's not really professional. And as such, as bad as it was, but it wasn't as murderous as it is in a systematic way, what we saw yesterday with so, two bombs. Okay. So I think that we may see now trying to come back to this uh, period of the pre-Intifada or in the 90s, the murderous 90s, where the Hamas tried to kill the Oslo process, which it did. And I hope that, and I'm sure, that our security forces and all our intelligence and all other agencies are working together to prevent this from coming again. Three points that I, I took from uh, what you said right now, of course, I took all of it, which uh, uh, has a lot of truth in it, but uh, three points that I think should be highlighted. The first one, even the Oslo Accords, uh, you know, I've spoken to many of the advisors of uh, Rabin in the past and uh, people who surrounded him. All of them are unequivocal. Rabin would never have accepted 
a Palestinian state, no. and he would have revoked the Oslo Accords if he would have seen what happened after he was assassinated, of course. Uh, something that I don't think many people realize it was that during the Bush administration, the, the latter one, uh, that uh, brought about ultimately the whole concept of a two-state solution, uh, something that within today's con- viable reality of, uh, uh, excuse me, geostrategic uh, outlook, it's not truly viable, is it? I don't think so. First of all, not because of Israel necessarily. You know, there are some rules and regulations, if you will. There is the Charter of the UN. There are criteria of what merits a state to a peoplehood. And the Palestinians do not check any of the markings, not at all. Uh, they, uh, first of all, they are split between two major groups in Gaza and the Palestinians, which hate each other, which fight each other. So this is number one. No one, you know, they do not have any agreement yet about the nature of the state. The Gaza wants a Sharia state. The others want a different kind. Secondly, it should be uh, a, a very um, friendly with all the neighbors, which is not the case. Thirdly, they should have transparency in governance. And we know the corruption there is probably unmatched by anywhere else. And many, many other things. They don't have their territorial area that they can govern, uh, let alone, of course, all the violence and terror. Look at the Palestinian Authority. It's total bankruptcy. Certainly, they cannot uh, uh, you know, protect their own people. They are the Palestinian police is afraid to go into areas of conflict which are basically governed and ruled by terror organizations, whether it's in Nablus, whether it's in Jenin, in other places. So certainly uh, they are not ready for a state. And in this, uh, uh, you know, ongoing uh, eventualities, I don't think they will ever be ready. Secondly, a state cannot be recognized, as we mentioned, as long as it's not friendly with others. But here you have an entity which is a terror entity, which is sworn on the destruction of a neighboring state. So, of course, until and and, and unless they change their entire culture, there is no way uh, a Palestinian state can emerge from from this. Well, of course, the the Palestinian Authority, I agree with you. It's it's bankrupt uh, both fiscally and morally, uh, considering the fact that uh, the corruption there is staggering, and uh, it comes at the expense of the people, which ultimately Israel does have an interest to ensure its well-being and, and uh, prosperity sure. on, on multiple levels, uh, since this is translated into security, among others. Uh, but uh, let me challenge you on, on this matter, considering the fact that you grew up in, in the ranks of the foreign ministry, so to speak, and then where uh, Lend uh, or... Uh, brought into the the prime minister's office, as you noted, as the deputy policy chief uh, of the prime minister, and then uh, subsequently the policy chief, and then you went to Washington uh, for that intermediary and returned uh, as a policy chief once more. Uh, During that period of time, Ehud Barak, the former prime minister, defense minister, uh, chief of general staff, and and a a very... um, capable individual, so to speak, uh, came out and and offered the Palestinians 96% of what we define as the 1967 borders, the lines, the green line, uh, 
something that the Palestinians demand, including East Jerusalem, uh, the war territorial uh, discussions about East Jerusalem within that context. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why did the Palestinians back down on such a vigorous offer? Of course, I I heard their side of the story as well, but I'd like to hear your perspective on this. I'll tell you, Jonathan, as a student of this conflict, and I've studied it from, you know, all sides, and also a practitioner, the inescapable, um, I would say, conclusion that I have is that more than the Palestinians want their own state, they want to destroy ours, the Jewish state. And you can go back all the way to the Mufti, Hajjamin al-Husseini. So it's a religious matter? I believe it's a a national, it's it's an explosive cocktail. And this is the, the, the thing. And into this explosive cocktail, unfortunately, the Palestinians are being also uh, infused by radical elements like the Muslim Brotherhood, like the uh, Al-Qaeda and, and the ISIS. And I can tell you, Jonathan, and you know it probably as well or better than me, that without Israeli intelligence and security presence in the West Bank, there wouldn't be Palestinian Authority. First and foremost, they would go against their own people to make it either a, a no-man land, which is like a failed entity, or a very religious, extreme radical religious and a fighting organization. Indeed. Well, uh, two angles to this, however. Uh, the first one, uh, I did speak with uh, people of the, the senior leadership of the Palestinian Authority, including Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, as well as uh, Salam Fayyad and and different figures within there. And when Salam Fayyad was still prime minister, I I asked him, I said, as you noted, all the characteristics for statehood are not there. What are you doing in order to make a difference? And if uh, I remember uh, correctly, Shimon Peres defined Salam Fayyad at the time as the Ben Gurion of the Palestinians. Uh, unfortunately, he was less capable of asserting uh, that dominance that Ben Gurion had. But ultimately, uh, the the security cooperation with Israel, the the variables in there, um, do maintain this entity, as you note. But the same entity is then taking Israel to international fora, challenging its own legitimacy. Under UN Resolution 2334, we have the the U.S. abstain under the Obama administration and and bring about a new reality in which those same disputed territories, including Judea, Samaria, the Jordan Valley, so-called the West Bank, has uh, been now defined officially under international law as Palestinian territories. So where is this heading? I'm telling you the hypocrisy and the cynicism of the international community is just has no limits. And here, you know, I I would like to turn into our Christian friends. I mean, we do not have better friends than the evangelical Christians. I call them the Zionist Christians. How do they allow, and it's not them, how do they allow Christian countries, you know, whether it's in Europe or Latin America, to vote at the UN against not just our values and tradition and history and legacy. Judeo-Christian legacy is one and the same, us and the Christians. And yet you have Christian countries that vote against Israeli or Jewish, or I would say uh, Judeo-Christian ties to our holy temple. 
they go to UNESCO and they vote to, uh, to uh, define Jerusalem and the, the, what they call the Haram al-Sharif, Temple Mount, as a Muslim site and only as a Muslim site. And this can go, go on and on and on. And this is very, very unfortunate. I think it is high time that we all pull together, you know, democratic countries, like-minded countries. And if sometimes governments are unable to do it, I think there should be some outcry, a public outcry, to, to just vote for the truth. And also, I would say, the truth in this case is also our own interests. Uh, and, and here we are all uh, tied together. And, and this cynicism is unmatched where, you know, Abu Mazen, you mentioned Abu Mazen and the Palestinian Authority, supposedly they are not, uh, uh, or they're for peace. But how can you explain the pay to slay legislation that they have, where they actually award terrorists who kill Israelis with benefits? They get money, their families get money, and there is a, uh, you know, there is also a tariff the more Israelis they kill, the more money they get. If they kill Israelis in Jerusalem, it's even valuable more. And this is what the tribunal in Hague should have been involved with, engaged in, and not what they try to do and deny our, you know, our heritage and our place here in the world. Indeed. Well, unfortunately, uh, last week, actually, I, I spoke about this. Many Western countries uh, today within uh, specifically also the context of the European Union, uh, European nations, uh, define in their constitutions, including the Netherlands in particular, uh, they define international law to have uh, more weight than national law, which ultimately challenges national interests. Uh, when it comes to matters like UN Security Council Resolution 2334, which ultimately the Netherlands will vote against Israeli presence in the West Bank territories because it needs to adhere to its own constitution. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, during your time uh, in the, the foreign ministry as the deputy foreign minister, um, was uh, Uri Rosenthal in, in the Netherlands, uh, who was a uh, foreign minister, Jewish background, who ultimately recognizes uh, Israeli um, uh, history and, and Jewish history as the, it's his own history as well. But he cannot vote in favor of that truth because ultimately his constitution works against it. How does Israel maneuver within this international um, facade, if you will, of so many organizations trying to push legislation that ultimately challenges both national sovereignty all over the world, uh, which then also has its own ramifications for the state of Israel. It is tough because Israel has been late into the game. What the Palestinians have tried to do now for the last 50 years is to delegitimize Israel, to render it a pariah state, and now they come with a different uh, slogan, you know, apartheid, all kinds of nonsense. And unfortunately, you know, we, you know, we were outnumbered. You know, there is one Jewish state, there are 22 Arab countries, 57 Muslim countries. And here the quantity also makes some, uh, some quality. And if you add to that ignorance of the general populace in, in every country, you know, so if they are bombarded by this nefarious uh, ideology, and messages from the Palestinians. And from the Israeli side, they hardly you know there's a trickle of the truth. This is uh, the result. What do we do about it? I think we should, certainly, 
We should not give up. We should uh, try and get our allies together. You know, there are about 15 million Jews in the world. There are about 600 million evangelical. I think if we would work together, if we would find a way to kind of streamline uh, and have a better seamless operation worldwide with the networks of organizations, because the Palestinians have arranged a network of organizations against us in every country. If we do the same, I think we can counter it at least somewhat, you know, take the, uh, the, the, the sting or the, the, the poison out of these messages of the Palestinians. Nevertheless, from a religious perspective, Muslim nations, you spoke about the 57 nations, uh, who are defined as Islamic in one way or another. Under Islamic rule, under Islamic law, none of those nations, whether friend or foe or strategic partners or doesn't matter their title, they cannot accept Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. They cannot accept any foreign rule other than Islamic rule. And then once there is Islamic rule, they'll start fighting about it themselves, who controls this uh, uh, piece of territory. Uh, is this a, a reality that we can um, contend with, considering the fact that there is an automatic ma majority when we're speaking about matters of Jerusalem? Well, I think what we should do, well, first of all, yes, the, the automatic majority uh, works against us. There is no way we can counter that at the UN. There's the numbers talk, you know, out of 193 nation states, member states in the UN, about two-thirds are not democratic. Mm -hmm. And first of all, we said the 57 Muslim countries. There are other countries who are being actually persuaded, I would say, by the Muslim countries by the oil, you know, uh, politics and all that. So, yes, there is an automatic majority against us, which I think we should, you know, it, it does actually delegitimize the UN itself, the credibility of the UN, the morality of the UN. And um, there was some idea a few years ago that, uh, you know, the UN is all good and well, we should keep it, but let's have another organization of like-minded countries, of democratic countries, and that would have, you know, this moral authority. Whether this will uh, come to uh, fruition or not, I don't know. But we certainly should not give up. The fact that the, the Muslims have pretty much, you know, brainwashed themselves, you know, for the last 2,000 years, when Jerusalem was under Muslim rule for 400 years, there was never a worse situation of Jerusalem, desolate, dirty, ruins, the Muslims never looked at it as a, as a, you know, as a special place. They have Mecca and Medina. Jerusalem has become so important and so salient in their ideology or thinking only with the return of the Jews to their home and to their eternal capital. Mm -hmm. and, and this is the, the, the absurdity that we face. We should never give up and we will never give up. Of course, the, the Islamic rule uh, over... Uh, the land uh, started in uh, 1187 until uh, 517. The Mamluks uh, ruled the land, of course, then the Ottomans took over until World War I, uh, where uh, they signed the surrender to Winston Churchill, among others, uh, at the Augusta Victoria. But we're drawing near to the end of this uh, episode, and I'd like to, to ask you, considering the fact that currently still 
uh, Operation Wastebreaker is ongoing. Uh, there's been a vigorous uh, operational activity, both from an intelligence perspective, but also on, on uh, matters of uh, operation co uh, conduct on the ground. Um, I don't remember a moment in uh, the last 30 years in which there have been more arrests, nightly arrests, for such an extensive period of time with targeted uh, neutralizations, we'll call them, either killings or, or um, taking them out of the, the game, so to speak. The new government is coming in. The, the Minister of Interior, who was a former commander of Sayyid Matkal, is now going to be replaced by somebody who was a member of an uh, internationally recognized terror group. Uh, the defense minister, we still don't know who's going to replace him, but the incumbent or outgoing defense minister uh, was a chief of general staff, among other matters. Is this national um, government, so to speak, uh, the, the nationalist right-wing government, neoconservative to the spectrum, of course, so neoconservative to conservative, is that the answer to bring about... Uh, a piece considering the curriculum vitae does not really bid in favor of uh, uh, like-minded individuals who are now taking the reins of power here in Jerusalem? Well, first of all, Jonathan, I would give them the benefit of the doubt. I, their record is not the best, but let's wait and see what would be their practices and what would be their policies. However, when it comes to Israeli security, there is a consensus. I don't think we will see any change in the, the, the operation of uh, the IDF, the Shin Bet, or intelligence, or any other intelligence of, uh, you know, security uh, agencies. Right, yeah. There won't be any difference whatsoever, and we'll keep doing what we need to do, regardless of who is in government. Indeed, and uh, of course, uh, taking into account that uh, uh, much of the reason that we entered into Operation Wastebreaker was to eliminate the hold of Palestinian Islamic Jihad and uh, other Iranian elements within the West Bank, the northern Samaria region, uh, ahead of a po possible or plausible conflagration vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Hezbollah and other Iranian proxies in the north. Uh, have we reached a certain point where we said, okay, this this is acceptable, we're now in a better position uh, from the point where we entered into this campaign? As you know, Jonathan, there is no one silver bullet against terrorism. They equate it here as a lawn mowing. You know, you have to keep mow the lawn and keep going because they keep sprouting. And again, why do they keep sprouting? Because there is this incitement from Tehran, from Gaza and other places. So it's an ongoing operation and we will never tire nor will the guardian of Israel sleep nor slumbers. Indeed. Uh, well, unfortunately, this is all the time that we had for today. I appreciate you, Danny, of course, as always, uh, providing us with your both experience and knowledge on, on current affairs and uh, the, the importance of, of standing uh, behind the truth here for Israel, but also you, you do this in so many other uh, fora as well. So thank you again for being My part pleasure. of today's program. I'd like to thank all of you at home as well uh, for yet another episode of Editor's Note. And until next time, wishing you a good week. Shalom. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.